Brooklyn, New York. I'm Lisa Butterworth, and this is Caught Red-Handed. Hello, my faithful listeners. Thank you for being so patient. I know you've been waiting for the second part of the interview with Nick. The reason for the delay is because I went out of town for about two and a half weeks, And I edited the first part of the interview before I left, and now I'm finishing up the second part, just for you guys. So uh, you may realize from the last episode that I was in Australia. My job sent me to Australia, to Sydney and Melbourne. And so I was there for about a week and a half, and then spent the last few days in Bali. Just flew back from Bali today, so that's maybe why I sound so chill today. Um... As for Australia, I really loved it. I had no idea what to expect. I just thought it was kind of like another America, just uh, on the opposite side of the earth, but turned out to be very familiar and yet very different too. I just uh, absolutely loved them both, and the food there was incredible. I ate a lot of Asian food, and pretty much everything I ate there was delicious. The only thing is, is things are really expensive there. I thought New York was expensive, but wow, Australia is just out of control. Um, So anyway, I had a really good time. Glad I went. Uh, I was not prepared for the cold weather in Melbourne, which seems a little bit uh, cheap to complain about since it was only about 40, mid-40s, and there was a big heat wave going on back here in NYC. So I just kept it really quiet when I was complaining about the cold weather there. Uh, The last part of my trip was to Bali, as I said. I went to Ubud, and uh, it's just this um, once small, sleepy town, but I guess uh, Eat, Pray, Love really turned it into this huge uh, tourist spot. But I got off the beaten track and went and saw some temples and tombs and lots of great scenery outside of the town. It was very cool, very relaxing, and uh, everything was just gorgeous and lush. There were terraced rice paddies everywhere, and every night I fell asleep to the sounds of running water, frogs, birds, and even gamelan music. Just a really great experience and just what I needed after a very busy year at work and also busy um, two weeks training people in Australia. So I am back in New York City. I have two days off before I go back to work, and so I thought I would make use of that free time and get this episode out as soon as possible. The second half of this interview is longer than the first, so my intro will just be short. Also, I don't have a lot of news to report apart from my trip. When I was editing this second part, I really enjoyed listening to the interview again because I didn't remember a lot of these things. It seemed like so long ago that I talked to Nick. It was great to to uh, hear it all again as if it were new and I had forgotten how many different topics we hit upon so I hope you enjoy it as well Uh, a lot of you have sent me comments and I really appreciate them they've been very interesting and also very supportive 
So definitely keep them coming. Um, please also stay in touch on our Facebook page and or the blog. I'm working on some new formats for future podcasts, some of, it, some of which may involve your participation. So I will talk about all of these things more on the blog and the Facebook page. So definitely um, follow those so that you'll be kept abreast of everything. As I said, this is going to be a short intro, so let's get right into the second half of my interview with Nick Cartier. All right, so let's talk about how you practice a new style. <laughs> so we just discovered Sudanese designs. So how are we going to get how how are we going to get good at them? I mean, the first thing you have to do is look at as many of them as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Like I reach this state with all of the sort of art forms that I follow and and work in. I reach I reach this state of overload. Yeah. Visual <laughs> overload where because- you're almost dreaming of it. <laughs> Well, yeah, and that's never happened to me. It happens to you a lot, I oh, think. Oh, yeah, that's true. But that's actually never happened to me. But I reach a point where I'm like, oh, you know, like you feel completely overstimulated and there's too much in your brain. Ah, uh, yeah. That's good. That's supposed to happen. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, it's uncomfortable, but it's very, very good for you as an artist. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that's the first thing I always do. And so important specifically to henna and probably to other art forms as well, um, is that you know what you're looking at. So, you know, you have to get good at at visual cues. Um, There are certain telltales, specifically in photographs of henna designs, that let me know, you know, how long ago something was done, where it was done, um, you know, the kind of people, whether they were, you know, affluent city types of people, Mm -hmm. Or rural people. Um, so y- you have to look at all of these clues mm-hmm. uh, and then you have to categorize and sort of catalog in your head as you're doing this. Um, and I, for many, many years and still some, I mean, I have to be- get on top of this again, but um, I have massive, massive uh, stored amounts of these photos that are cataloged um, because that becomes your library as far as, you know, how, yeah. where you get all this information from. Um, so you have to really, like, get yourself into that almost overload mode to start. Uh, and then you can start to make sense of it. You know, when you start to notice um, patterns, things that are, are present in a, a lot of different photographs as far as what the actual design is. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, certain motifs that, that tend to repeat a lot or, you know, just, just different stylistic things. You, you can only do that if you have a really big sample in yeah. front. It's like taking any kind of survey. The, the bigger your sample size is, the more accurate your results are. And then the more, more um, trends that you'll see. Oh, wow. I exactly. keep seeing something that looks like this shape and I'm seeing it again and again and again. Right. And you'll notice them with varying frequency. Yeah. You know, like the big, if you have a sample of 500 henna photos from Sudan, um, you know, you're going to see things that occur eight times out of 10. And then you're going to see things that occur four or five times out of 10, which are also interesting to note, you know, how often something happens. And also those ones that appear four or five times. Okay. They're not 
predominant in the art. So why are they in some places, but not in others? And then you can start to look at the photos like, wow, the women in these photos where this motif appears all have really nice jewelry. This must be city stuff or upper class stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Or there's like, you know, the floor is dirt and there's a straw mat and this motif motif always appears in this kind of setting. Yep. Yeah, it, it's all those little cues all together will yeah. give you a lot of information. Yeah, and you know, to 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 do this, you also have to you have to be willing to learn about these cultures too. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, in my pursuit of Mauritanian design, um, you know, I had to also be in pursuit of Mauritanian culture to know things like okay, like actually in you know, so what? Okay, so what do, what does the average person think of when they think of Mauritania? They probably don't even know where it is, um, but <laughs> I've been but, there. Uh, I know you have. Um, but past that, like you, you have to really be, um, you have to be cognizant of what what's happening now and where and why. Um, yeah, we often get hung up on you, you know, sort of older traditions, things that are more quote unquote traditional to these areas. Yeah, but. This is still happening right now. And yeah, a lot of these exactly. that you're going to see are current or at least within the past five to ten years. Yeah. And so it's things like you mentioned, like realizing, okay, so traditionally speaking, uh, silver jewelry would have been preferred in Mauritania, yeah. you know, for many decades. Yeah. But, but now. This, now, Mauritanian women have phenomenally flashy and, and blinging taste in Trashy. gold. I mean, that stuff has become very, very popular. It's yeah. a trap. Yeah. And so it's things like that that you have to pay attention to also and really, I mean, be engaged with as much as you can from, you know, however many thousands of miles away we are. Yeah. Uh, you have to engage as much as you can with what is happening in the culture at current and put it all together. That's something that I totally agree with you there because that's my passion and that's something that I've expressed to you as kind of disappointing that when we teach our Moroccan class, people's eyes just kind of glaze over when we talk about culture and maybe, you know, that's my teaching style. I'm not engaging them enough and they just want to learn the designs. They want to figure out how to do the designs. They want to learn the motifs and start henning. Right. And And I feel like, you know, if we go back to the beginning of our discussion about how groundbreaking everything was back in the early days of our our um, henna childhood. Culture was so interesting to all of us, and everything about henna was so interesting to us, from how the plant grew to, you know, what um, women in Jaipur did for fun, you know, back in the 1400s or whatever. <laughs> everything mattered, and now I don't feel like, you know, this cultural stuff matters. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you're right. And I don't know why I, I really like, I'm hard pressed to figure out what happened there, what yeah. shift happened. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I think it matters so much because the designs are based, they live in a living culture and they change like cultures change too. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so you have to, you have to be aware of all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, well, well, I don't know. Maybe that's a subject for for another podcast. But yeah, that know. that lack of lack of interest in culture, I find upsetting. And, and I think, you know, just a very basic 
interpretation of it is that people just want to know how to do the design so they can make money doing them. Yeah. I mean, I think it's funny also because sort of as, um, as, as Western henna artists learned about the cultures um, that henna comes from, mm-hmm. there was a point at which people almost started to, um, whether they meant to or not, sort of incorporate some of that into their own lives. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot yeah. of a lot of American henna artists started wearing like salwar kameez to gigs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in an attempt to incorporate some of that culture into their artistic practice and into their life. Um, but as too often happens, especially in America, I think a lot of those things ended up getting really romanticized. Yeah. And almost fetishized. Yeah. 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 To, to a point where, you know, like people aren't, aren't looking at, you know, what is actually happening. They're just like, Oh, saris and bindis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And and what a lot of people, I think, don't realize about these cultures is that, I mean, okay, so even in Mauritania, so like the the traditional the traditional dress of most women in Mauritania is called a melhath. It's mm-hmm. a big piece of fabric, very similar to a sari, and it's wrapped in a specific way. Um, and traditionally, the melhath were dyed in various patterns. Um, they have their own form of bundany dyeing. Yeah, I have with, one of those. I think I showed I it to you. I, you might have. I just yeah. I just brought back a couple from Marrakesh last time oh, that are. Cool. Off. But anyway, um, <laughs> um, but people don't realize. So, like, even in in uh, specific industries like that, there are fashion designers who work in Mauritania specifically in the melhaf industry yep. who design new kinds and prints of melhaf, like. <laughs> It's a totally traditional garment that has been worn probably for thousands of years, but it still has its own cutting edge. Yeah. All of these things. And always did. Right, exactly. All of these things surrounding henna culturally, even though they may look to us like, you know, some old thing that that got stopped in time and is oh so romantic, actually it's not the case. They all have their own forward movement. Yeah. And trends. Yeah. If you look at Moroccan henna, you know, what was, at what point do you say that's traditional? Like at one point, a blob on the palm tied up, you know, a big ball of henna in your palm and then you tie it up with cotton cloth and then it just leaves the marks of the folds of your hand in there. That was traditional. So, you know, at what point do we freeze tradition? Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that's, I mean, for, for me, that's the biggest reason to really try and engage culturally as much as you possibly can, because it doesn't stop. Yeah. This, and, this and, and, and I think also engage culturally, not so that you can dress like them for your gigs. I, um, sorry, I had a lot of derision in my voice there. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but to actually kind of like steep yourself in that culture and almost channel it when you are doing the design and right. not, and and on a like a spiritual or an energetic level not in wearing a sari and right right channeling it that way and to find authenticity it, exactly i think that's yeah. a more important word than traditional is authenticity yes. what's authentic and what's authentic in the moment even yeah absolutely like yeah black, black henna is authentic in morocco now sadly 
Yeah. You know, that's that's a, a feature of Moroccan henna in this current time. Right. And that doesn't mean we should use it, obviously. Yeah. Example. Yes. But yeah, that's the God kind forbid. of thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's the kind of thing, yeah, to, yeah. to absolutely be aware of. Yeah. Uh, all right. So we were still talking about how to practice a style. So, so, you know, we've delved into, we've, we've, we're swimming in the designs. Yeah. I'm dreaming about them. Um, <laughs> and then we catalog them, look for trends, look for recurring motifs. We start to kind of do like a statistical observation of what yeah. appears in there. So now like, how do, how do we take that and start, um, doing the designs, like copying them. And then also how do we find our own voice within that style? This is the trickiest part. And I think, um, I think that the, really the best way to start approaching it is actually to, to, you know, find a photograph and do that mm -hmm. design same as it is in the photo. Um, because, you have to learn, you know, almost like in a, in a muscle memory or repetition kind of way, you have to learn how all the shapes exist together um, and how they're created and how they interact. And if you're, if you're spending your brain's energy trying to find your own voice right away in a style that you've never worked in before, you're going to miss the foundation. Mm -hmm. um, and so really, I mean, when I was trying to learn Mauritanian designs, that's what I started out by doing. And I've done that a number of times. I mean, some of, a lot of the, the, the work that I've done that has actually received a lot of acclaim has been just, you know, straight out from a traditional source. <laughs> um, because I end up doing a lot of that as I'm trying to learn these new styles, because that's mm -hmm. really how you're going to learn the motifs. You know, you have to learn them in a setting that your brain feels comfortable with, where it doesn't have to improvise yet. Um, Which is so, kind of comforting in a way. Yeah. Like it's and a safe, it's a safe place to explore without putting your creativity on the line. Right. Exactly. See now, and then the tricky part becomes um, that you really, really have to, do a good job of paying attention with your eyes as you look at this thing, because especially if you've already been working in henna for a long time, it's really easy to look at something and, and for your brain to say, oh, I know what that is. Even uh, yeah. some little, some key difference, some small or some different element that is actually really important. Um, but because you have the skill to draw it, you don't really understand it right so like yeah this, that's really so good. like one motif that this happens with all the time this is like this is super nitty-gritty that i'm getting into but cool. it's it's cool yeah i think so um so one motif that this happens with all the time is the the usual like indian style we think of it scallop edging mm -hmm. some people call it humps i don't know who came up with that name um scallops, I, scallops what exactly. i don't know what it's called that thing we all know what that is we all use it all yep. the time I can show you probably 15 different ways to make that that motif is made. <laughs> and they each are used by different people to create a different effect. Yeah. And, you're, and you know, some people are probably going, what, to that statement? But it's true. It's yeah. those kinds of subtleties that really make something authentic or not. Yeah. If you approach a Mauritanian design um, and you make Indian-style scallops, 
well, guess what? It's not a Mauritanian style design anymore. <laughs> yeah, and it's and that doesn't make it invalid. But if your aim is to copy something exactly to learn it, then yes, that's not absolutely that's you not accurate. Pay attention. You can't yeah. allow your brain to look at that and say, "Oh, I know how to do that." Yeah, have to see and and try as as you know as much as possible to make it true to the original. So that's really, I mean, that's the next step. And then once you've done that for a while then you probably have these motifs sort of starting to build up in your head. Mm-hmm. And so then the important thing becomes, okay, looking at the bigger picture, how are they put together? How, how do they fill the space? Those kinds of things, um, which is equally important. I mean, you know, you, you can't take, um, this is really important actually with Moroccan style. Like mm-hmm. you can't make Moroccan style designs in an Indian way as far as their construction. Yeah. Um, we go over that in our classes all the time. Yeah. Um, and so it's those kinds of things, the, the bigger sort of uh, building blocks that, that then become really important once you sort of understand the individual motifs. Yeah. Um, and each style has its own way that it is created. Um, and that's part of the reason that copying uh, originals is a really important step because you'll see what works and what doesn't. Um, mm. You know, like like if you if you go into trying to copy a Moroccan design from a, from a photograph from Morocco, Mm -hmm. if you go into that design, trying to make it um, in the same way that you're used to working with Indian motifs, you're going to have a really tough time because it's not going to come together. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to be able to do it that way and have it look like the source. Um, So just through doing that, you start to see, okay, this works. Okay. This doesn't work for what I'm doing. And then you take all that stuff together once you've got your motifs, once you know how they fill space, and once you know how they work as far as to create them together. Mm-hmm. It's it's complicated. Yeah, yeah. But each all of those things together brings you to a place where you can create from your head designs that would fit in quite well with you know the authentic source material. Yeah. And I don't know if people are necessarily concerned with that either. Yeah. I mean, I am because I, I think that all of these sources are just the coolest thing. Yeah, I share that. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know that, you know, your mainstream henna artist actually cares about whether their work could pass for, for you know, something that was done in country. Um, yeah. and And who are we to say that that is the most important thing. I guess you know, right. it really depends right. on what you're doing. But, you know, if you're going to do a Moroccan woman's bridal henna, it might matter to the bride that it it's might. authentic. Or maybe yeah. the bride wants you to do your special, you know, breaking the rules thing. So it'd be, right. nice, yeah. to have it, it, it'd be nice to have it under your belt so that you could do both. Absolutely. But that's yeah. my bias. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and I feel the same way. And it's it's not like, you know, I don't want to start like profiling our clientele or anything like, like, you know, oh, yeah. I don't I don't I don't know Mauritanian style yet. So I, I won't take Mauritanian clients. I don't want anybody to be doing that. But yeah, yeah I think it's important to have it under your belt, at least. Yeah. Um, and because, in general, it makes you a better artist in whatever yeah. style you do, like just do just learn Sudanese or Rajasthani as an exercise in expanding your capacity to create as an artist. Right. Or your capacity uh, to learn too. Absolutely. 
Um, and then another sort of important aspect of this whole thing is that um, because these are changing traditions um, mm. and a lot of the time nobody is cataloging them, it almost like – I mean I don't think it's – I don't want to say it's our responsibility because that's a heavy word and I don't know that it's true. But um, it's it's – we have started to make documents of these design traditions mm -hmm. by learning them and continuing to use them. I mean, a lot of traditions that are dying out. Yeah. So that's another, that's like, you know, another great motivation to really learn all this stuff. Yeah. Like the first time that I went to Morocco, um, I had done some geometric work on a couple of people, you know, like the, as, as, as is, uh, as is put forth in our book, you know, our, mm -hmm. our really, uh, as authentic as possible uh, estimation of these traditional Moroccan geometrics. Yeah. And done some of that work on some people and the local Moroccans said, Oh my God, we didn't know anybody knew how to do this anymore. Aww. I just got, uh, I just got like goosebumps when you said that. It's, it's kind true. of, it's, it really it's upsetting and yet it's also kind of exciting. Yeah. Because I mean, and so especially in places like Morocco um, where mm -hmm. everything is changing so rapidly. I mean, these yeah. are nations um and a lot of this stuff really is is kind of becoming unimportant culturally to them yeah so those few moroccans that i i mean i talked i talked to a ton of moroccans of course but those few who i had that specific interaction with you know you kind of start to see like like they're saying there is some value in this tradition to us yeah yeah and their pleasure in seeing that is yeah proof yeah, so you know nobody wants these things to get lost, uh, and sometimes it, it, it's sometimes some some appreciation from the outside can really help people preserve their own cultures. Yeah, and you know that that is a, a deeply problematic statement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know. I I have a I we've talked about this a lot that I have some I don't know if shame or guilt are the correct words, but I feel a little weird going in and saving their culture for them right. as a white woman from the West. Exactly. And, you know, I've lived in third world countries and I can see the damage that that kind of attitude does. Right. And yet, um, I love this stuff. And if only for me, I want to, I want to go into it and look at it and catalog it and, yeah. and document and, it. If it and helps I mean, this them, is why... great. This is why, like, I don't teach design. So I've taught, I mean, I've taught classes in Morocco, which is weird. It was very weird wow. at first. But yeah. I said from the get-go, I'm not going to teach design. I'm not teaching these people's designs back to them. I'm not doing that. You know, I'll do my work and they'll see what I'm doing. And, you know, best case scenario here, that's going to revive something in them that is already there. Yeah. You know, like... Moroccan people have seen the the geometric traditional designs. You know, yeah. they've all seen them. They've been around. They're not popular right now, but yeah. they've all seen them at some point or another. And so if I can revive an interest in that part of their culture that they're already a little bit familiar with, then they're going to be the ones who take the reins there. And bring it back <laughs> themselves. Exactly. Yeah, I feel like that's the best possible approach to that. Because, yeah, I mean, there, there are so many... My God, we could do a whole episode about like colonialism. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and you know how how this whole dynamic can actually be really screwed up. Yeah, but yeah, like and well, no. Let me just let you finish what you're saying. Oh yeah, uh, I, I mean, but you know, basically, what I said just now, I think I think 
that just attempting to revive an interest and then realizing that it's not our job to 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 do that kind of uh, preservation work once hopefully once an interest is revived. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, my, my, um, assessment of the Moroccan situation is that Western culture is so pervasive and so, um, kind of shoved down everyone's throat in the West, but also in other parts of the world that I feel like in Morocco, they tend to think that things that are that are part of their culture are not worthy because they don't make it into the mainstream of the world. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of denigrate henna and they denigrate their authentic designs. And that's, I think that's why Khaliji was so easily adopted because, you know, it came from the Gulf countries and those people are really rich and they come to Morocco to hunt and whore around and um, party or whatever. And so, so it just kind of deepens that Moroccan um, self-esteem issue. And so if what we have to do as Westerners is show them that, hey, some people do like this authentic stuff that you do, maybe that will boost their esteem for their own traditions or their own authentic designs. Right. Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> um, wow, that was a big lecture from me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think we could have a whole, like you said, a whole conversation about colonialism, a whole conversation about Moroccan henna. And, you know, I, I don't feel like that conversation is ever done. We, we had a big conversation with, with the book and there's still so much more to, to talk about. Um, so, so we were talking about how to learn a new tool. We we're uh, talking about how to learn a new style. So what what's next in the style front for like what are you, what's on your radar lately? Mm. Is anything? Um, you made new that's new a tricky one. That's very tricky. Um, I have I, there are two styles. I mean. They're not new though. See, I haven't, I haven't honestly found a whole lot that I, that I, that was previously undiscovered in recent years. Yeah. Or new to you maybe. Uh, one thing that I have been working on, um, a little bit and I've presented in a couple of classes, um, is again, going back to a source, but it's designs that are traditional to Rajasthan in mm -hmm. India. Mm -hmm. Um, which anybody who's, you know, taken a couple of my different classes in which I talk about them will know that they are very, very, very different from what we think of as Indian designs. Yeah. Um, and the tricky part there is that that is a nearly dead tradition. Um, and so it's not something that's current, meaning that it's a lot more research-based. Um, but oh, okay. I, I have a few... Um, key sort of resources there that I'm working on, uh, working on, you know, getting as much information as I can out of. Um, and, you know, that may eventually become an accepted style. Um, already some of the motifs that I introduced from Rajasthani designs have become widely accepted. Um, there's that one uh, star fill with like the, the tessellating stars. Um, oh, yeah 
which a lot of people are using now. I've taught it in a few different classes, but that comes straight out of traditional Rajasthani uh, designs. Um, and so, you know, once I have a, a, a more clear sort of a, a handle on how the whole thing goes together as a design style, um, then that may be something that I end up presenting. Yeah. Um, but like sure. I said, it's a lot more difficult because there's almost none of that work still happening. Yeah. And if it is happening, it's happening in very, very like rural situations in India where, you know, there just isn't a lot of photography. And because I, unfortunately, for the time being, do not have the ability to go there. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. Hmm. Um, other, I mean, aside from that, uh, there was the, the Sudanese boom <laughs> recently. <laughs> Um, which I haven't necessarily taken a lot of time to work on yet. Um, so that's something else to think about. Um, and I'm still working on Mauritanian. I mean, you know, that's been in progress for years as far yeah. as me actually cataloging and reintroducing that design style. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm teaching like the, the, the Mauritanian course in September. Yeah. California. So that'll be interesting. I'm working on putting that together. So I'm doing a lot of work right now, like really intensive kind of study of that. Um, because there is, you know, we, we've, we've hit the, the tip of the iceberg as far as that stuff is concerned. Cool. Yeah. So there's a lot more there, a lot more material, which I'm working on. And other than that, I'm not sure yet. Where else are you teaching? Um, this year I'm only teaching at the intensive. Uh, oh, okay in Wrightwood in September. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's the only thing I have booked right now. Um, I don't know what else. I'm, I'm a little out of touch. <laughs> admittedly, <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know what else is going on, but yeah. yeah. I want to talk about authenticity for us as artists and how you deal with the fact that there's nothing new, or maybe that's not a fact, but the idea that there's nothing new, that everything is derivative you mean just as in art in general? In art in general, but, you know, with the mind towards henna and how, okay. you know, how we have all these sources now, especially with the internet, we have traditional sources and we have other people's work. You know, how can how can we be authentic as artists? I mean, there is still, especially more so in henna, there is still the ability to make something that is actually quite new. Um, I think there is. I mean... Why, why especially in henna? Well, because it's an art form that is still kind of exploring itself. Oh, I mean, oh. you know, like, as opposed to, like, painting or sculpture, yeah. which have been established for so many centuries and so many thousands and thousands of people have engaged with them as yeah. art forms. Yeah. Uh, but henna is still like compared to all that stuff, extremely minimal as far as who is doing it and when. Um, and so I think that, I mean, and, and like you said, everything is going to be somewhat derivative. I mean, you can't draw a line on a piece of paper without it being derivative of mm -hmm. something else. You really can't. Yeah. So that almost becomes like less important to me. What does become important is, you know, how people... Um, how people use these things. Um, 
and and what the context is and who they are and who their clients are and all that kind of um, bigger stuff than the designs themselves. Um, and, you know, if if somebody takes, say, like motifs from 10 different authentic styles and puts them all together in some way that they've never been put together before, then that is, you know, that is something that's definitely pretty new. Yeah. yeah. Even though it's, you know, it has its roots, but the engagement with it is different. Yeah. And we're able to do that as henna artists a lot of the time, which is cool that we're still in this place of exploration. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, I think we have a lot of expansion yet to do also as far as what we think of as henna, like, you know, we think of henna as mostly fine line or fine-ish line mm-hmm. on, you know, with, with a specific set of tools, um, line work type of designs. Um, but there's a lot of room for expansion there. I yeah. mean, I'm, I'm not necessarily doing that kind of work, but like, you know, when I when I look at Michelle Lamy's fingertips, and they're just like, you know, she, she's she's just blobbed some henna on there, and there it is. And she is in a high fashion context. Mm-hmm. This is something different now that's happening again. It has older roots, but it's taken to a, a new setting and a new uh, a new aesthetic. And so. I think that there's a lot, I mean, especially, especially as far as the tools that we use, I think there's a lot of room. Um, some people I think have started to do some work with brushes or whatever else. Um, and I think there's potential there. I think there's definitely, you know, so many different ways that we can do this. Um, and, and then that involves, you know, changing what we think of as henna, as far as a henna design. I mean, you can't make the same kinds of designs with say a brush that you can make with a cone or a jacquard bottle because it doesn't, it doesn't do the same thing. So, you know, you're going to get a different effect, which has barely been explored. Yeah. So I would, I mean, I admittedly, I don't do really any of that type of work, but I would love to see somebody doing it. (laughs) Yeah. Just, just, just throwing the old notions out the window as far as, you know, how we use henna in our process and, and what kinds of designs we make and really doing something out there because there's great potential for new things and interesting things to happen. And they're not going to look like what we used to do, which is, you know, sometimes it's easy to write something off that doesn't look like a henna design for us as artists, but um, like to basically say that's not henna. Right. Like there was a, a kind of a, a kind of a, a, a dark and weird example is that some years ago on a on one of I don't I don't remember which which particular web community it was nor do I really want to you know name any of them um, but there was a, a situation in which um, the work of the art an artist uh, Barbie Kane came mm-hmm. up who has for a lot of years been doing really groundbreaking stuff, applying Mm -hmm. henna in non-traditional ways, um, you know, making really non-traditional designs. And there was kind of a little, there was a, a, a little nastiness that happened as far as, (laughs) Oh, what is that? That's not good henna. What is she doing? Right. And that 
has changed now to a point where I don't know how much work she's still doing, but I mean, she is someone, at least for me, like in my little pantheon of artists that mm. I have a ton of respect for. Yeah. Cause she is pushing things and yeah. has been for a long time. Yeah. You know, people who are going to go out of the boundaries that we're so used to are probably going to get some flack for it. Yeah. Uh, but she, she did it anyway and she kept doing it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at this point, I, I love her work. I respect it a lot. Maybe it wasn't something that I immediately understood why it was good or important. But at least in my development as an artist, I've come to a point where, you know, it's absolutely it's very, very important. Maybe that some of the most important work that people are doing. So I think we need more people like her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you think the future of henna is? And and then also, what do you want the future of henna to be? <laughs> Um, I can't, I cannot predict the future, so I don't know what the future of henna is. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Just tell me what you wish henna would become. Um, I want it to at least be recognized by most people because like, you know, I want, I essentially, I would be very happy if people just knew what it was. <laughs> <laughs> Simple um, needs. It's really, it's not a lot to ask, I don't think. You know, I mean, it, and it's funny, like, we live in a big, especially in America, we live in a big media-saturated circus. Um, and this stuff has been around the media. I mean, when Madonna has worn henna, like, you would think that it would get some exposure. And it yeah. did for a while there. But yeah. still, every day, you know, as, every day I meet people who have no idea what this stuff is. Yeah. And I just want people to know about it, really, like like to know it's there as an art form. Everybody knows what a tattoo is. Yeah. But there are so many people who don't know what henna is. And that's step one, really. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, once you broaden the knowledge that a thing exists, then you can start to work on, okay, like, well, you know, let's make sure this thing is respected like we know it should be. Yeah. But you have, people have to know you're there first. <laughs> so you would be happy if the Kardashians all had henna on them and it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't what? like... You know what? I totally would. Yeah. <laughs> as distasteful as I may occasionally find the Kardashians, yes, that would be awesome. <laughs> so Honey Boo Boo with henna. Yeah. You're good with that. Bring it. Bring Mainstream. It. Cool. <laughs> they bring it. Um, how would you feel if... Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just going to get silly. So I go down that whole honey boo boo thing. I've never seen the show. I've just heard about it. And that's about all I want to ever know. Yeah, probably all set. Okay. Yeah, I'm good. But, but really though, like, you know, all joking aside, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, this, this is, it, it would, because if the Kardashians are wearing henna, if honey boo boo is wearing henna, like, Hey, guess what? We're going to get a an immediate uptick in business, which is great <laughs> yeah. for all the reasons that it's great. Yeah. But B, we're going to start getting attention. Yeah. Which we have not been very very well uh able to get so far. We're going to get all kinds of attention. And yeah. what does that do? It allows us to put all of these things forward, these things that we're learning and working on as artists. Yeah. And you know, with that then comes a respect for the art and a knowledge of the kind of work that goes into it. And also, I mean, ideally a respect for the cultures that it comes from. Yeah. 
it yeah. has this great domino effect, I think. Yeah, I agree. So, and that's, you know, that's part of what happened in the mid-90s, around 96 and 97, when Madonna and Gwen Stefani and, you know, Naomi Campbell were all wearing henna. Yeah. Uh, some of that actually did happen. It made its way pretty far into the mainstream. Definitely. Uh, and, you know, I was just thinking, I was talking about this the other day with somebody. The 90s were a, a, a very funny little decade in, in that they were trying very, very hard to be multicultural, but mm-hmm. had quite realized it yet um (laughs) yeah but now we're in a place where that kind of attention could really be harnessed yeah definitely take us into even even better shape than the progress we were able to make then you know it's it's kind of funny you know talking about the 90s and how there was this effort to be a multi-culti and then 9-11 happened and you would think that maybe and this has happened. There's been kind of a backlash against Islam and against the the East. And yet there's also this huge uptick. You know, Moroccan style became so hot and, you know, Bollywood style became so hot. And it hasn't really cooled down. And that's been, you know, 10, 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still, you know, it's like we discovered it and now it's, it's kind of incorporated into Western culture. I mean, at least in the U S I don't know about Europe. Um, and so maybe that's, that's part of this whole progression towards, uh, henna on the Kardashians. (laughs) It might well be. I mean, except the thing for me is that, I mean, at this point in history, like, yes, what we do is considered by many to be in the realm of the exotic. Yeah. But I mean, let's face it a really big portion of the people who are working with henna in this country are white Americans. Yeah. And a big proportion of our clients are white Americans who get henna for their vacation in, you know, the Dominican Republic or something. It's not, it's not an exotic thing. Exactly. And really like, I mean, that exotic treatment of it is for, it's fun and it's cool and it's great. And, you know, it's, it's like, it can be a fun way to engage people, but actually it can also hurt things because Mm. it means that people who do not wish to appear exotic will continue to look down on what we do. I I have a feeling that the Kardashians are not super interested in looking very exotic. True. Um, Unless they want to, unless they want to embrace their central Asian roots or something. Right. Right. But for now, they don't want to do that, at least. It doesn't seem that way. Um, So, I mean, really, that exotic sort of uh, attitude is something that we might need to work on moving past. I mean, I mean, we are at this point American henna artists. Yeah. So, yes, what we do comes from this, this, you know, very old and, and much different place, list of places. Um, <laughs> but we're here doing it now, which yeah. really, it's funny, it ties right back into almost what I was saying about like learning different design styles. Like this is a living art form. Yeah. And it takes on the character of the culture that it lives in. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's important for us to, to especially, especially for us as American and artists, it's very important to sort of guide that process yeah. and, and guide it into our culture in a way that is respectful and sensitive and ultimately like interesting and cool and progressive Yeah, and, you know, shield it from the negative influences if we can, 
and get it firmly, you know, uh, firmly rooted in the positive parts of what we do as a culture. Yeah. And I think that's something that I've always wanted to do from the beginning. And maybe this is just kind of snobby of me, but I didn't, I never wanted henna to be a fake tattoo. I never wanted it to, to, you know, kind of be an approximation of something else that already exists in our culture. I wanted it to be appreciated for what it is. And that's why, and this is where the snobbiness comes in. That's why I didn't want to do kanji. I didn't want to do Superman logos and SpongeBob and, and, you know, just appropriate what, appropriate the art for something that it is not exactly and, and yet not be so stuck in this so-called traditional style right so it's so a, it's it, a really weird balance to try and achieve and you know in any art form like uh there's a whole set of criteria that go into judging whether it is good or not mm-hmm. um and you know if somebody has a really poorly done SpongeBob tattoo, mm-hmm. and you know the 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 work is it wasn't done well, and you know it, it's maybe, not done well. exactly, yeah. um, and it doesn't look so great. Um, that's not something that we want to bring in. Yeah. Um, however, I have had people come to me with photographs of work of tattooed work that is gorgeous and well done and mm-hmm. well considered and asked me to replicate that in henna, which I have done. So yeah. as long as we're focusing on, you know, the best aspects of all these things, then I think that, um, that's a way to sort of get around that problem almost. Yeah. Like there's if I always, have... there's always going to be poor quality in everything. True. Um, and, and the funny part is like, you know, Sometimes the difference between quality and poor quality is something as simple as technique. Yeah. Like, um, I mean, it's entirely possible to to create a very, very well done tattoo of SpongeBob. It's totally Yeah, exactly. To and I that. think I think um, uh Antoinette Hippe did like a Star Wars X X Wing fighter. Right. Or a woman's belly so and, and she did an incredible job so right. is I, I don't know exactly i mean so really in the end it, it's like this is something we kind of has to have to grapple with as artists and say okay like are we gonna allow this stuff to to make its way into our art form that didn't used to be there yeah. and i think we probably should but then uh, the the focus on quality becomes super super important. I yeah. think. I was just looking at some photographs of Molly, and I'm sure you know the Molly and textiles that they make their you know the the women's clothes out of, mm-hmm. and you know there's stuff that's very traditional, authentic. And this was a picture of a little kid, and he was just wrapped up in one of these pieces of fabric, and it was this crazy design made out of kind of old time looking cell phones. I saw that picture. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it's like, that's not traditional, authentic, but the way that it was done, the way yeah. that the artist used those motifs to, to create the design was inventive and it was very Malian 
and the colors were very Malian and it was, I, I don't know. I just, my heart just that's, was like, wow. You know, that's actually, that's a phenomenal example of an industry that has really like run with this whole process that we're talking about. Yeah. Fabric is called wax print. Yeah. Um, and it traditionally was made in like Holland, um, you know, some mm-hmm. some decades ago. Uh, and it was made by actually like a machine batik process. Um, in Holland? Yeah. That's where the original wax prints were made. Oh, okay. And so this stuff is is worn all over West Africa now. Yeah. You, you see women in Brooklyn walking down the street wearing wax yep. print who are from West Africa. Yep. You see it all the time. Um, in my and neighborhood. It's, and it's a huge industry. But if you go and look at wax print, oh my God, it's like yeah, the designs that these people have thought of to use on this fabric are yeah. insane. They're insane. Yeah, They're... like Louis Vuitton logos and Kalashnikovs. <laughs> yeah, no, really. Like, like, actually, that's not an exaggeration. No, I know. <laughs> I know. I've seen them. <laughs> <laughs> and yet it's all still, it's done in a, a, a very, um, you know, you know, it's wax print. You see yeah. it and you know it is wax print. You know what it is. Yeah, and it just screams <laughs> West African. Yeah. And, and so it's authentic. It feels authentic. Right. So that's a great example yeah. of how this can be done successfully. And I'm yeah. not saying that we need to make Louis Vuitton logos and Kalashnikovs and henna, but. <laughs> no, but, but I have, I saw Lizard do a Kalashnikov for a client and really? uh, it blew my mind. Oh my <laughs> I was too good for it. I was like, ugh, I'm not going to do that. But he yeah. worked out an amazing Kalashnikov on this guy's arm and he was so happy. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, anyway. So it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the Kardashians are now just wearing henna as an everyday thing on their TV show that's still running 10 years from now. So 2023. Mm -hmm. And we have a woman president. Yay. And um, she's gay. Okay. Why not? (laughs) No. What the hell? Why not? Let's just go. Let's just. Okay. Is she black also? Um. You know, she is Asian and Cherokee and Filipino. Oh, yeah. She, the Asian is Filipino and she's Cherokee. Are you describing Cher? <laughs> oh, yeah. Cher for president. That would be fine if Cher was president. Wow. That would be great. Yeah. Add, <laughs> add that to your list for um, your fetish list. Another person I'd like to henna. All right. So President Cher um, and the Kardashians are like all in her cabinet. No, God. Um, so... So henna is this mainstream thing. So where mm-hmm. where do you want henna to go from that point? What's what's henna's role well, in society from okay. there? So what's great about that kind of mainstreaming is that that is really an environment in which talent becomes important. Um right now with something that is still considered pretty exotic Mm-hmm. You know, it's all, it all looks exotic. Mm-hmm. Good henna looks exotic and bad henna looks exotic. Hooray. Oh, it's exotic. yeah, yeah. But when something is mainstream, like, you know, you know a good haircut when you see one and you know a bad haircut when you see one. And guess who are, you know, guess who are able to support themselves and devote themselves to the art of hairstyling, mm-hmm. talented hairstylists, mm-hmm. because they have the support that they need to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there's like a mainstream need for it. Exactly. And you know, the, the, that kind of situation is really when the cream rises to the top, um, and talented people, you know, and it's, of course, 
it's hard to make a comparison because, you know, there are all kinds of industries that have all kinds of layers and layers, like the fashion industry. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that all of the most well-known fashion desires are automa- designers are automatically the most uh, talented. Right, but there's a potential for, for exactly. it. And, yeah. you know, there's a potential for talented people to make a living. Right, right. I just, when you were talking about, um, you know, something starting out and then becoming mainstream, I just immediately thought of hip hop. And, you know, that was, that was something that, that evolved. I don't really know the history of it that much, but I'm looking at how, what hip hop is now and how it became, how it was a very niche thing and then it became very mainstream. And then you have, you know, people from all different cultures being into hip hop. You see it spreading around the world. You know, you have Moroccan hip hop artists and, um, you know, uh, Tibetan hip hop artists, I would assume. I don't know. It's just, (laughs) it's a worldwide thing and it's not so special anymore, but then you see people taking it in their own direction. Like, Moroccan hip hop artists who live in France are much more political and much more like uh, philosophical than American hip hop. Right. You know, and American hip hop is, is, this is my opinion, but it's a little bit more about the bling and the crystal and the booties and stuff. Whereas (laughs) Arabic hip hop seems to be more political and, you know, maybe in other places it's developing in another direction. And even in the U S it's, it's going off in tangents that are really interesting and creative. Absolutely. I mean, you get really, yeah, that's a a really good example too. You get all kinds of craziness that is all of a sudden permitted once something's mainstream. I mean, you get, it's not exotic anymore. Right. The the art. And, and, and still people almost because it has become neutralized, people are able to make something new with it. I mean, yeah. you get like MIA, for instance, yeah. who this entire, almost entirely new sound in. Yeah, that's um, very And true. then you, yeah, and then you, and she's very true to you know where she comes from. A lot of her work as a musician is about her roots. Yeah, and then I mean, now we're seeing people um, like uh, Big Frida, like we're seeing gay hip hop artists. I know, like things that we never thought would happen. Yeah. So, yeah, it's I, almost like it becomes so mainstream that it then has to transcend the mainstream. Yeah. You know, it has to break through. Kind of like Absolutely. punk rock. People start exploring how we can break rules and and create something new. Yeah. It really is like it's it's you know, leaps and bounds happen. Yeah. When that that uh dynamic comes into play, I think. Yeah. I think it's really cool. Yeah. And it's a little it's a little scary because any time that this happens with any art form at all, um, of course you have to end up weeding through the shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. There end up being people who, for whatever reason, have decided they're going to make a buck or whatever, and you know, like you get musicians and artists and whatever who are making music that we consider like the lowest common denominator. Yeah, the stuff that gets played on the radio. Exactly. And the stuff but, that sells. But still, I mean, in in hip hop and other kinds of music also, a lot of those more cutting edge artists are able to be pretty successful. Yeah, so. and a lot of that has to do with the technological landscape right now, I think, that you can produce your own stuff and you can disseminate it and 
And I also feel like our culture in general is kind of technology um, drunk. You know, we're so <laughs> we're so overwhelmed with everything being so perfectly produced and auto-tuned and packaged and marketed that we kind of crave for that, you know, felted owl that somebody's selling on a street corner. Yeah. And we want <laughs> vinyl and we want, you know, handmade dresses and stuff. Yeah, there's always a back and forth. Always, yeah. always. Yeah, so maybe, you know, henna is kind of a crude art form in the sense that it's very, it's a very physical art. You know, it's a thing that goes onto your skin. It's not something that you can produce and sell or buy and consume like a lot of accessories. And it kind of feels like that felt owl. Yeah. I mean, well, and also, I mean, I think right now, like we're in a period of time where I want I want, I almost want to be like the MIA of henna. (laughs) Like the music that she made was made on really basic equipment, at least to start with. Her first album was like, you know, it was like her in a recording studio with a few pieces of simple equipment. Mm -hmm. She made the whole thing that way. It's like a a re-roughing, you know? Yeah, exactly. And so that's part of why I think that I'm so drawn to all of these older style, you know, really uh, crude types of designs right Mm -hmm. now is because I want to have that re-roughing. And the next step after that is that you develop something new, I think. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about going back to the roots. Like my boyfriend says there wasn't any good music produced after 1970. Uh, which is ridiculous, and yet I can understand that because there's there's something really potent and authentic about it because it wasn't produced and focus grouped and marketed. Right. I think people really hunger for that. It feels it feels I don't know. It's just more tasty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. So yeah, maybe I and I think henna kind of maybe henna needs to needs to go through a period where it becomes mainstream and then you know hopefully along the way we can keep taking it off off the mainstream and yeah into mia (laughs) north african uh hip-hop territory or something yeah no for real yeah i think so and you know it's funny like i think a lot of people don't realize that that hasn't happened yet Uh, henna artists in particular you know we kind of think of the late 90s as the mainstreaming time of what we did yeah but it was barely, it was, you know, it was scratching the surface. We had a lot left to do. Yeah. Yeah. We've made a lot of progress. I, you know, i rarely get questions about what colors henna comes in right? and I rarely get asked for kanji. And to me, that's, that's just huge. <laughs> but yeah. So we have made a lot of advances that way. Yeah. But you know, it's the bigger stuff now. Yeah, definitely. And the little stuff too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we're getting close to our ending time. So I want to ask you, this is kind of a, a simple question. Um, I want to ask you what you like best about being a henna artist. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's those times when, and it doesn't happen to me very often, which is, I think maybe why it is so special. Um, it's those times when you have a phenomenal rapport with your client mm. and you almost create something together Yeah, and you both are super pleased with it. <laughs> they love wearing it. You loved creating it. 
and you've had this really lovely experience together through that process. I think those are like the best moments. And it happens so rarely, which is really unfortunate. I mean, especially when you're trying to do henna to, you know, if you need to pay the bills, um, you don't really, I mean, like, it's like a lot of professions. You don't get to pick your clients. Yeah. Time. Yeah. You have some degree of control over it, but not, you know, you can't only pick all the awesomest people. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And even if you try to do that, it doesn't always work out that way. (laughs) Exactly. Um, but yeah, if that, if I got to do that every time that I sat down to do henna, then I would do this full time and never look back. Yeah. Yeah. But don't. So, you I, know. When you were talking about that, I was thinking about that New Year's Eve party we hinted at. Oh, that was fun. <laughs> oh my gosh, it was such a blast. We and, were really drunk. Yeah, we were really <laughs> drunk, which kind of helped. But I think even sober, I mean, everyone was so into it and, and people treated us like, you know, resident artists and friends and... um yeah, yeah and, and it was – I don't know if I did good work that night. I Unfortunately, <laughs> I have no recollection of that, but it was that kind of connection with your client that's – I think that's just such a special and rare yeah. thing. Yeah. It happens to me every now and then, most often at Tribal Fest lately, one of my bigger gigs. Oh, that's because, cool. Yeah, because a lot of the people there are you know more clued into what we do to start with. Yeah. I find that helps. Yeah, yeah. they're primed for that. Right. So yeah. That's a nice thought to end on. I like that. <laughs> I like that image of the co-creating with your client and both feeling pleased with what you did. Yeah, it really I mean it it really is a a co-creation. Yeah. I mean and I say this to people all the time more more and more lately the more that I teach. I mean yeah, you can make a pretty head design on anything. Yeah make a nice looking henna design on anything, but you're not working on just anything. We're working on people live people who wear this stuff on their bodies. Yeah. I mean, I have a background in performance. So for me, that's a huge deal. I mean, all, all the work that I do even as a painter and performer and whatever is essentially, I mean, connected to the body, but that's such an important thing as henna artists. I mean, you're not just trying to make something that looks pretty in a vacuum. It has to look and be and feel like that right thing on a living human being. Yeah. Um, So it's it's just so important. Yeah. And and even though you're just painting, you're painting it on a human being, you're also interacting with them as a human. It's not just that it's on their skin. It's, it's on their person. It's on their personality and their being. On, I mean, it's a part of their personality once yeah. they're wearing it. Yeah. yeah. And then you're kind of inhabiting them with your work. Right. And, and you know, also it's kind of up to you in a way to figure out, okay, like how, how am I going to um, – you're almost picking out their personality and then allowing them to wear it <laughs> in a way, you know? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like – like you pick up on aspects of people and bring that out in whatever, you know, whatever you choose for them to wear. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> well, I think that's it for this conversation. Uh, I, okay. I love how 
how far we went off. I'm looking at my list of things that I wanted to talk to you about. And I just have kind of one or two word, just like a word or two. I don't even have questions written out, but uh, it's been really interesting just to see where all of this went. And, um, and I feel like I learned a lot about you, even though I've been friends with you for like 15 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. That so, was cool. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I think that we have touched on enough topics where we could probably do this again. I would love to talk to you more about Moroccan henna. And um, I know you and I talked about this. I, I would love to do a Q&A thing where people email in questions or tweet us questions or something. So we'll have to um, see if we can do that at some point in the future. That would be super cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for uh, putting up with all of my sound <laughs> testing today and uh, I'll get all this technological stuff handled. And thank you for being such a great interview subject. Yeah, totally. That was way fun. <laughs> okay, great. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye, Nick. Bye. Wow. That was some great hand conversation. Always love talking to Nick and it's been a while. So as you can see, we have a lot more to talk about. Recently, I met up with Noam, and he and I discussed about maybe three other ideas for uh, podcast interviews, and we also discussed the possibility of Noam, Nick, and I all having a conversation. So look for that in the upcoming episodes. We will definitely let you know about this as it uh, transpires. I have to thank all of you listeners out there for listening, also for subscribing, for liking, for following, so please keep up the good work. Special thanks as always to Nash Kurm for the photos and to Shlomi Cohen for the awesome music. Thanks everyone for listening. See you next episode. Bye. Some people call it humps.